Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to tonight's meeting of the Commonwealth Club. I'm Don Howard, President and CEO of the James Irvine Foundation. I'm pleased that the Irvine Foundation is supporting tonight's event. Tonight's program is entitled, Is the American Dream Out of Reach for Most Californians? How Businesses Can Restore the State's Middle Class. Before we get into our panel, which is the most important part of the evening, let me just say a few words about Irvine for those who don't know us. We're an 80-year-old independent foundation focused entirely on the state of California. We're not uh, related to any family anymore or any company, and we have the interests of California's low-wage workers at the center of our strategy. Our goal is to ensure that every low-wage worker in California has the power to advance economically. And we're privileged to get to give away about $100 million this year toward that end. Why did we choose this focus? Uh, We sponsored some research recently that you may have seen from PRRI that surveyed 3,300 Californians, uh, representative of the state's demographics. Two-thirds of those respondents were workers or folks looking for work. Of those who are working or looking for work, 47% were struggling with poverty. Of those who are struggling uh, with poverty, four out of 10 cut back on food, medication, or visiting the doctor. Six in 10 are worried about paying their bills and their housing. Two-thirds of those folks say employers see them as replaceable. Probably equally distressing, of all those surveyed, the 3,300, more than half say the American dream is harder to achieve in California than in other states. At Irvine, uh, we've looked at these bleak statistics and have focused all of our energy on addressing income inequality in our state. Three areas where we're investing that I can highlight. One is training up workers. We're supporting best-in-class efforts to train up low-wage workers for family-sustaining jobs. We committed $120 million to scale up the most effective skills-building programs, uh, anticipating that with those resources, 25,000 more low-wage Californians can move into family-sustaining work. And we recognize that's just a drop in the bucket against the 2.5 million workers who don't have any college education but are ready and able to work. They just need to learn more skills. We're also focusing on ensuring every low-wage worker gets paid what they're due. Uh, Folks may not know that every year in California, $2 billion in lost wages uh, are experienced by low-wage workers. 600,000 mostly minimum-wage workers don't get what they're due each year, and those are often in the lowest-wage industries and in small businesses. So for those 600,000 workers, the average loss is $3,400 a year. Can you imagine having a minimum wage job and not being paid $3,400 that you're due? So to address this, we're investing $80 million to strengthen worker centers, restaurant workers, domestic workers, warehouse workers, helping them address wage theft through a partnership with the state's labor commissioner and supporting them as they pioneer a new form of labor organizing and advance power for low-wage workers in our political system. We're just beginning to address cost of living and housing and are exploring different ways we might address affordable housing for workers. Uh, What we're up to here and uh, in a number of events we're doing across the state is trying to engage employers. And as we think about the disconnect between the capacity of nonprofit skills building models and what's really needed in the state, we recognize employers have got to be 
a critical leader in the solution of addressing wage inequality in our state, income inequality. They face enormous challenges. 1.4 million middle-skilled jobs are estimated to go unfilled um, each year. That's jo- those are jobs that require more than a high school degree, but less than a BA. Employers struggle to hire workers that resemble the people of California, and they recognize that extreme income inequality is bad for our state and bad for our souls. Some employers see a win-win here. Employers need a stronger and more diverse workforce, and they need prosperous customers. Low-wage workers need to be skilled up for better-paying jobs. So we want to support at Irvine employers who understand that creating economic opportunity for entry-level workers is in their best interest. So we're connecting with business leaders across California to do three things. We're listening, trying to understand their pain points with their entry-level workforce. We're looking for ways to support them as they help entry-level workers build real careers. And we're partnering with them where possible to mobilize around a vision of California where all low-wage workers have the power to advance economically. And that brings us to tonight. It's now my pleasure to introduce our moderator, Lenny Mendonca. Lenny uh, is now the Chief Economic and Business Advisor to Governor Gavin Newsom. He's also Director of the Office of Business and Economic Development for the State of California. He's a Senior Partner Emeritus of McKinsey & Company and a lecturer on inequality at Stanford's Business School. Lenny also happened to obtain his MBA from Stanford. He's the former chair of the New America Foundation and chair emeritus of the Bay Area Council and its Economic Institute. In addition to all of this, Lenny is a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Directors. I'll turn things over to Lenny to introduce the panelists and the panel. But before that, I'd like just once again to thank you for coming and to thank Lenny for moderating tonight's discussion. Over to you. Great. So uh, thank you, Don, and thank you for everything that the Irvine Foundation does and for your leadership in ensuring that these important conversations are part of the dialogue for the state of California and that we're not just talking about it, but that you're helping along with others provide the leadership to help make sure we do something about them. So thank you again, Don, for for your leadership and for Irvine Foundation more broadly. Uh, It's my pleasure to help moderate this fantastic panel this evening. And the topic of is the American dream out of reach for more, more, more Californians is a timely issue. And so let me do a quick introduction of each of our panelists, then I'll make a couple of opening remarks and then we'll, we'll have each of our panelists give their perspective on the topic and then we'll open it up for some dialogue and Q&A after that. So with that, let me introduce our terrific panel. Just to my immediate left, you are right, is Dr. Sarah Bone. Sarah is a director of research and a senior fellow at the Public Policy Institute of California. As the director of research there, she works to bring high-quality, nonpartisan research <coughs> to important issues to the state of California. Her own research, which she will be talking about tonight, focuses on alleviating poverty and enhancing economic mobility, timely for our conversation. Her other areas of expertise include immigration policy, the workforce skills gap, and California's economy. She holds a PhD in economics from the University of Maryland. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you. <laughs> and to her immediate left, your right, is Rhonda Johnson, who serves as the president of AT&T California. Ms. Johnson leads the company's state workforce, including more than 33,000 employees and nearly 50,000 retirees. As a 30-year veteran of AT&T and its predecessor companies, 
She previously served as AT&T's Vice President of Regulatory Affairs and was appointed to her current position in 2018. In her role, she is responsible for AT&T's government affairs, public policy, philanthropic and social engagements and initiatives in the state of California. Ms. Johnson grew up on a family farm in Illinois and holds a degree in finance from the University of Illinois. Welcome. And, and next to Ms. Johnson and to my left and your right is Joe Spiker. Joe is the executive director of the Autodesk Foundation. Under his leadership, the foundation is supporting impactful people and organizations that use design and engineering to create a better world. Prior to joining Autodesk, Mr. Spiker was on the founding team of Living Goods, where he spent six years leading operations for the Global Health Organization. He's previously worked at Deutsche Bank as well as spending three years in the Peace Corps. He holds a master's degree in economics from Columbia University. Welcome, Joe. And last but not least is Minnie Tao, who is the general manager of Recology as well as a board member of the San Francisco Chamber of Commerce and the Union Square Business Improvement District. She's the first Asian-American and the first woman general manager of Recology Golden Gate in its 97-year history. Congratulations. Ms. Tao joined Recology in 2011, bringing with her over 20 years of work experience in both the private and public sectors. Her previous experience included deputy assessor recorder for the city and county of San Francisco and an 11-year tenure with the Bank of America, where she rose to senior vice president. In 2018, she was inducted to the forever influential honor roll by the San Francisco Business Times. <laughs> Thank you. Congratulations, of all. Okay, um, let me uh, make a couple of, of opening remarks uh, before turning it over to our panelists. Um, as Don Howard said, I'm in a new role as the governor's chief economic and business advisor for the state of California. And the reason I accepted that job was that the focus of the role is to help ensure that the California economy works for all Californians and that, in fact, the California dream is alive and well. So I could not be more happy to moderate this panel. Um, my answer to the question, is the California dream at risk, is yes, it is at risk. But it's at risk because we need to pay attention to it and ensure that it is renewed. Mm -hmm. California is one of the most vibrant economies in the world. We're, in fact, the fifth largest economy in the world. If California were an independent country and divided into its different regions, we'd have the richest state in the union where we're sitting right now in the Bay Area. And over a little over 100 miles away, we'd have the poorest state in the country in the Central Valley and the Inland Empire. And that's not even accounting for the cost of living in those in the parts of the of the uh, of the state. So we have an opportunity and a challenge to harness all of this innovation and power that is and wealth that's being generated in particular parts of California, including where we're sitting today, to ensure that the California economy works for everyone. And we'll talk about in the panel some of the things that are important to help address that. And I'm not going to repeat the statistics that Don said, or I'm not going to steal Dr. Bone's thunder about the things that she's going to tell us. <laughs> but let's just say we have an opportunity and a challenge here. And among the things that, and from my point of view, that we need to focus on are, number one, ensuring that the economy is robust and that we continue to create jobs. We can't have economic mobility if there's not a robust economy and opportunities for everyone to advance. 
Secondly, we need to do that in a way that creates more opportunity for everyone, not just those who happen to be benefited by the, today's economy. That includes those that have different <coughs> geographic locations, includes those that have different skills, includes those that have not had the opportunity to benefit from this enormously attractive economy. The third thing we need to do is that it costs too much to live in the state of California. That's no surprise to anyone who's in this room. And that is particularly driven by the cost of housing. We have a challenge of ensuring that our supply of housing keeps up with the demand for people who want to live here. And most of that is because it's a really attractive place to live. It's the first day of the week after daylight savings time came, and it's gorgeous here. Why wouldn't you want to be in California? And there are great economic opportunities in large parts of the state, in fact, the whole state. But it costs too much to live here, and we need to make sure we have enough homes to house all of those people. And then finally, what I'd say is we need to have a system broadly defined that works when people are in transition or not able to participate in that. The social safety net, the opportunity to ensure things like with the credits that we give for people that are working are there to ensure that we incent them to work and build their skills. We need to ensure that our higher education systems, our post-secondary and our early education are all connected to the future of work. Those are no small challenges, but it's something that in the state of California, we don't shy away from. So our opportunity, and I hope we'll be talking about tonight, is how do we ensure that that California's dream is real, not just for those who happen to be here, but those coming after us? How can we ensure that the California dream works for all? And importantly, there's a major role that employers can play in that, both as job creators as well as important voices and participants in all the things I talked about and many more that our panelists will describe. I'm delighted to be part of this conversation and look forward to learning and hearing from all of our panelists. So with that, let me turn it over to you, Sarah. Thank you, Lenny. And thank you to the Commonwealth Club for convening all of us around this important topic. As you heard, this is an area of deep interest for me as a policy researcher, and I'm really excited to, to be part of this conversation. I thought I would start us off by highlighting three kind of trends and facts about the status, really, of middle income or the middle class in California and economic mobility uh, to get us started. The first, uh, I would reiterate some of Don's comments earlier that, in my view, the data suggests that at least half of Californians are either um, struggling economically or are stagnant economically speaking. Although we're growing jobs and growing the economy in California faster than the rest of the United States, we have a, a stubbornly high poverty rate at about 19%. And what that means is that about one-fifth of Californians are living on $31,000 a year or less for a family of four. And working uh, poverty, I just gave away my next point, uh, poverty in California <laughs> is really an issue of working poverty. So 80% of poor Californians live in a household where at least one person is working. Um, so over the long course of three or four decades, uh, we see low-income families in California today doing just about as they were, uh, just about as well as they were in 1980. And in fact, middle-income families aren't doing much better. I would suggest um, they're quite stagnant. So the median family in California today is doing just 20% better in terms of income than they were in 1980. And that's actually reflecting the last few years of real improvements for, for middle-income families in the state. 
Um, so in sum, we see middle and low income Californians really falling behind, especially if you compare that to how uh, high income families in California have done. So uh, top incomes are doing about 60% better today than in 1980. So in a relative sense, low and middle income families indeed are, are really falling behind. And that's a vestige of uh, economic changes that we've experienced over these last three to four decades um, and changes in kind of labor market opportunities that really have driven the premium for education higher and higher. So now really the single biggest factor in your economic status is your education level. Um, I would actually suggest to you that this kind of um, disparity in economic outcomes isn't necessarily in and of itself um, a bad thing for economic growth. From the kind of economist theoretical perspective, um, those differences could uh, be incentives for individuals to enhance their skills and reap the rewards of, of higher income. Um, in that sense, it's good for economic growth. But there's a lot of concern that we're at a level today of income inequality and polarized economic opportunity that inhibits that kind of, um, those incentives to play out. And I would actually suggest that's the key question uh, that we need to talk about is whether those incentives in our economy work today in California. Are there pathways um, to move up the economic ladder or are we just so polarized that the leap is, is too hard to make or that our institutions aren't able to facilitate that kind of upward mobility. So I would like to then highlight two trends related to this that I think is part of the solution. And, and I would suggest that all of us, um, between government, industry, philanthropy, even research, have a role to play in addressing um, whether... Um, uh, economic mobility is, is open to all Californians. Um, and the last two trends I wanted to highlight are um, trends in the labor market and in educational attainment in California. So job opportunities have become more polarized. In the last uh, 10 years or so of the economic recovery, the, the uh, jobs that have actually grown the fastest are in uh, low-skilled um, service sectors like food service. Um, these are low wage jobs and uh, this trend is likely to continue. Um, and so I would suggest that that can put a limit on the economic mobility that we might expect for Californians unless there really are pathways out of low wage work. Um, and I'm really interested to hear industry's uh, um, perspective on that exact topic. Uh, I will say that from a government and policy perspective, um, uh, there's a lot that we can do and are doing um, to create those kind of pathways out of low-wage work. And this is connected to the third um, trend that I wanted to, to mention, and that's in, in, in the educational attainment realm. So older workers in California today are actually the most educated out of uh, across any OECD country in terms of their um, attainment of college degrees. But young workers in California today are actually um, behind 20 out of 31 OECD countries in the share that have a college degree. It's about a third. That might be a little bit surprising to you. We're just above the, the educational attainment of Slovakia, the Czech Republic, and Portugal. 
And to improve this, these outcomes at the, co- at the kind of bachelor's degree and above level, but also um, uh, for workers with um, some college that's, that's maybe not a four-year degree, I, I would suggest that what we really need to focus on is um, access to education and educational outcomes um, for students from a wide variety of backgrounds. So improving the outcomes and access, especially um, for Californians um, that come from lower income backgrounds, will be critical to closing this gap. So to end on a slightly more positive note, I, I, I wanted to share my view on uh, some of the positive things that we are doing, uh, especially uh, in the policy realm uh, on the educational side. Um, education makes up about half of the state budget in any given year, and Governor Newsom has proposed additional investments in education, including a billion extra dollars uh, for higher education. Uh, a recent focus of policymaking um, is around not just um, four-year college degrees, but around building skills and credentials um, for older workers, or sometimes referred to stranded workers, those who uh, maybe have a high school diploma and, and went right into the labor market and are now kind of stuck in a, in a low-wage wage job. And I think this focus is, is really critical because two-thirds of Californians, of course, don't have a college degree. And so improving the wage potential for those two-thirds of our state um, could improve economic mobility immediately and address poverty, um, not just for the workers themselves, but their families and the next generation. So I'm really excited that this is, has been a focus of in recent years across the state, especially in Sacramento, um, and included dollars behind it, those investments. Um, but I would suggest those investments uh, can't work um, without partnership with employers um, and really sharing the vision that building better pathways from through our educational institutions into high-value careers um, needs uh, the employer partnership to ensure that we are matching the skills that are needed and adapting as the future of work shifts over time. So I'll end there. Great. Thank you, sir. Can I ask you just one quick clarifying question, then we'll move on to you, Rhonda. Um, you used the term inequality and economic mobility. Are those different, and what do you, what do you mean by those? Ah, good question. They they are different. I think they're intertwined. So um, income inequality or economic inequality is kind of the gap between people across the spectrum. Um, if you think of the traditional bell curve, we are not in a bell curve uh, state <laughs> of income in California. Um, we have a lot more Californians towards the low end of the income spectrum and a, a few people very far out um, at high incomes. And that's kind of the gap across our in- income distribution. It's related to mobility, I think, because of income, um, if income inequality inhibits your ability to invest in education, build skills, um, and be, um, you know, reap the rewards of that enhanced productivity, um, that, that will limit um, mobility of, of an ind- individual or of our collective kind of labor market and workforce. Okay. So economic mobility means you're opportunity to move up the economic ladder over time. That's, Thank you. Yes, okay. that's Great. a clear way to say it. Okay. Um, <laughs> Rhonda, you want to talk about what your perspective is on this and what AT&T is doing? Sure. Thank you. And thanks, Sarah, for the information. Um, and to the Commonwealth Club for hosting us here and having this discussion. It is important one to have. And certainly as AT&T, uh, we are a major employer in this state. As Lenny said, we have over 30,000 employees. And we have over a 100-year history here. Uh, we like to think of ourselves as a uh, startup company because we keep having to reinvent ourselves. We are no longer your father's phone company. 
Um, we used to have in this state, in fact, if you just go back probably 20 years, and think of your traditional phone company, we probably had over 17 million people with you know, a traditional landline phone. And now think about it. Who has one now? Um, we're going down to close to under a million. And you know, with the phone lines and the whole way we use data, video, and how people communicate, it demands us to change, and we need to change the infrastructure that we're investing in and the things that are happening from the resources and the people that we have. In addition to being a telecommunications company, we are now a full-fledged media company. We are excited because we just completed the transaction with Time Warner, um, so we are now Warner Media, and we also have DTV. So from both sides of our business and in the state of California, we have the exciting sector of entertainment, and we have the whole tech sector in our panoply of services that we offer, which means more growth and opportunity. So I think it is a fun and exciting time for AT&T, a changing time for us. Um, we have to continually, though, reinvent ourselves. And in fact, a couple years ago, we started a major undertaking to reskill our workforce. And as Lenny mentioned, we have 30,000 people here in California, but across the entire AT&T footprint, we have close to 270,000 people. And we decided, our CEO decided, that we needed to look at our resources, the people that have been invested in the company and that we're investing in, and look at how we retool and retrain them. So we started what has been called by Fortune Magazine one of the most ambitious reskilling programs in the corporate uh, history where we're looking at about 100,000 people going through reskills and retraining. And this means we are investing over $200 million annually in reskilling. Last year alone, our employees did over 18 million hours of training. This is a phenomenal feat when you look at, obviously, time on the job, but also what you need to do and the types of skills that need to be offered. We are no longer you know, service technicians like we knew. We are data scientists. We are people that need to know about engineering, about the iCloud, about you know, different skill sets that aren't your traditional service tech, but a software tech. So this type of training, some of it more technical, some of it more project management, you know, project management oriented, is something that the company is taking very seriously. It's a cycle of continuous learning. It's something that takes not only, you know, your whole sort of base of employees, but from the top on down, there's a commitment from the company to invest in the people and to make sure that we're providing these resources. In addition to the internal training, every year we do about $25 million of tuition reimbursement. So this allows our employees to take advantage of the university programs and initiatives that help to, again, expose them to new skill sets. So for AT&T, I think it is exciting. I think it's a time of change. I think it's a commitment from our company. We need to reskill internally, and this takes time. We started this about two years ago, and I would say we're about halfway through. We have a lot of work yet on our plate, and we are still hiring. You know, this is a company that's been here a long time including myself. At some point, we will all retire. But if you learn new skills, you get new opportunities, and then you also look for where you can hire new talent. And I think both in the Bay Area primarily and in the Southern California, we are hiring. We have job opportunities and bringing in new skill sets. So I think it's an exciting time for us, for a traditional company, to go through so many changes. Great. Can I ask you one quick follow-up question? Sure. Um, that's a bold statement to say you're going to do that level of reskilling and retraining. What was the business logic for your CEO to say that? 
I think our CEO looked out and said, obviously, we're a major employer. And we looked at not just what jobs we have today, but what we're going to need five, ten years from now. And you're, you're, you're not going to be able to just switch out everybody. These people are invested in the company, and obviously we're invested in these individuals. So how do you give them the resources that they need? And making that investment actually in training, while it sounds like it's a major investment, is much more worthwhile than going out and trying to find, you don't just go out and hire 100,000 people, but you look at how you can actually take advantage of those people, and you cannot expect them to be a service technician one day and a software technician the next. So you have to give them some time to reach that goal, and we needed to start two years ago in order to look at where we're going to be two years from now, five years from now. So I think we felt like that was the smartest way. And since we have been obviously investing in communities and hiring all across the country, that we needed to stay committed to that. Okay. Terrific. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Um, Joe, tell us about what Autodesk and Autodesk Foundation are doing and how you think about this. Yeah, well, I will say that the AT&T example that you've given, we've discussed that internally within our company. And while we don't have the number of employees nearly that you guys do, it's kind of an inspiration to see you guys take a stand on that and say, you know what, we're going to upskill our existing workforce as opposed to go out to the market and find new ones. So, and I was just mentioning that we talked about all that. I know, thank you. (laughs) Um, So, uh, for those of you that don't know Autodesk, um, we are a design software company. Um, This building is new, so I imagine, I hope, that it was designed in our software. Um, Products, cars, roads, um, you name it, it's likely been designed in our software tools. I lead our philanthropic efforts across the company. And uh, since inception, we've been investing in design and engineering for societal benefit, focused on some of our our biggest challenges on the planet, um, particularly climate change. And about a year, year and a half ago, our board, um, who is also the C-suite at Autodesk, said, um, wow, there's a lot of uh, automation and artificial intelligence technologies that we will be deploying it will have a major impact on the workforce. And so let's think about that and be really deliberate about how we approach this. Um, and so our foundation um, started investing in this space about, about a year ago. And we think about it in terms of transition. So I don't know if um, I'll take the tech view on the panel, but uh, as these new tools are deployed in the economy at large, think like Amazon Alexa in the workplace, it's going to radically change how we work, and it's going to require new skills and new competencies. And uh, what we saw out there was a lot of really good problem identification. How do we, how do, how do we, who is going to be impacted? Um, potentially drivers because of autonomous vehicle technology. Um, but there's not a lot happening for those drivers. And so we were trying to move this dialogue into the solutioning space. Um, I will say that um, from our experience, the artificial intelligence and automation technologies aren't aren't yet the cause of inequality and and lack of economic opportunity, but they are kind of um, shining a light on some of the issues that we have um, and could potentially exacerbate those moving forward. Um, And and the last thing I'll say uh, uh, on our point of view is that we are techno-optimists, because, because we have to be. You have to believe that technology is a force for good if you work at a technology company. We, we, we don't have the problems that some of our uh, colleagues do selling data, but um, we're a subscription company. But, um, but we, we have to believe that technology can be a force for good. Um, however, that does not mean that we're techno-deterministic, that the technology determines 
how we will deploy it in the market. Humans determine how we're going to use that technology. And so by kind of um, doing our best to stack the deck in favor of positive use and putting people at the center, we think that we can be successful. So uh, as, we, as we started to undertake this initiative, we said, okay, how, what, is, what, what are we doing internally? Um, and of course, like AT&T, investing in our own employees, ensuring that we have the top uh, most adaptable, best-in-class tools for our employees to succeed, um, including diversity and inclusion efforts, which, again, Silicon Valley, um, not so great at, but um, we're making progress and doing more and more. Um, also, because of where Autodesk sits as a company, um, we, we, we get the landscape view of our industries, um, which are architecture and construction, manufacturing. Um, and so we can say, what are the skills of the future? Um, and let's teach to the test. Let's make sure that we are providing the, the programs, curricula, and certifications that get folks into the roles that they need. Um, we're also investing in usage of the technology to solve problems. And when I think about artificial intelligence and automation, I think uh, it's pretty analogous to international trade. We can all buy bicycles and computers um, at the prices that we do because we engage in the international global trade system. Um, the benefits of using some of these automation, artificial intelligence technologies are synonymous with trade. Um, however, just like trade, they can really hurt very small segments of the workforce, like the people that used to make bicycles and computers. And so we need to ensure that we're using the tools for positive usage, and so folks would be more willing to, to adopt those. And I'll give you an example. Um, we have a tool that automatically calculates the energy usage of a building. Um, so previously, if you needed a team of 40 energy analysts and a couple of weeks of their time to determine if this building is going to be energy efficient or not, now you can use an algorithmic tool and do that at the punch of a button. And we absolutely need these technologies to succeed not only in business but in society, um, but it's only as good as the people using them, so, so promoting um, usage. Um, we also are supporting policies and public sector programs to, um, that are helping workers. And so um, we actually have a paper coming out with the Aspen Institute next week um, that is um, policies that will help workers impacted by automation and artificial intelligence. Um, and I believe that's just the start. Um, what I think companies can do very quickly, um, we've done some work with our friends at Deloitte to look at um, where we should be investing our efforts. Um, one of them is matching. So how can we ensure that private sector companies, employers, are signaling to the market what they need. Um, and therefore, the educational institutions and the, the training centers can actually teach that test. Um, also, we're focusing on um, how are we leveraging human capital? In Silicon Valley, and I believe AT&T and other players share this, we see labor as a value center. Um, many other industries see labor as a cost center to be minimized. And in future, when we have more and more of these automation technologies, um, you're going to need people who are creative, non-predictive problem solvers um, that is more of a value center. So kind of helping to make that shift. And then lastly, I think we really need to focus on diversity and inclusion efforts that we've just started this really in Silicon Valley. Um, and there's, it's, it's a long-term ROI because a lot of it is pipeline, but it's a big opportunity moving forward. 
You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. Great. Can I ask you one quick follow-up question? Please. Why does Autodesk do these sorts of things? Well, uh, because we are completely altruistic. Uh, no. no. Um, there's, a, there's a very strong business case to be made and in two ways. Um, one is businesses need a thriving middle class to succeed as a business. And lately, things don't seem that they're going the right way. So what investments can we make as a company to help ensure uh, economic prosperity for all so that, that we will have customers in the future? Um, secondly, as we look out specifically in our markets, um, we need folks to upskill to be able to use these tools. And it, you, know, you can look at it from a, a purely, um, uh, from our perspective, oh, it benefits the company for folks to be using these tools. If you look out across like literally global de- demographic trends, um, we're going to have 10 billion people on the planet in three decades. Um, we're going to add 3 billion people to the global consuming middle class. We're going to need two times as much energy. We need every tool at our disposal to be able to serve the needs of our global population. And so by, by using these artificial intelligence and automation tools, we will help us get there. Um, but that's, that's part of the okay. reason. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. Right. Wow. Mindy, all you. Uh, yes. Um, well, thank you for the James Irvine Foundation for supporting this program and for the Commonwealth for hosting it. Good to be here with these esteemed panelists. Uh, my name is Mena Tao. And um, as Lenny said, I have worked at large global enterprises from publicly traded company to privately owned, from government to startup, and have always been very active in the communities that I live in. As you can see, I have worked in many different environments with different culture, and I really didn't realize how employee ownership could work until I found and joined Recology eight years ago. A 100% employee-owned company is what I realized what an employee culture is all about and how it provides and creates opportunity for all who is willing to be gainfully employed. Owners tend to work harder. I'm sure there's a lot of owners here, and you know how it is. Provide better services, especially when you own a piece of the pie. It is the mindset of the owner. So recently, you may recall um, about four to six months ago, we had a fire at our facility, the one that you drop off all the, the waste with your son. We had a big fire uh, right off of 101, um, and smoke was covering the sky for hours. We called the police, and the fire and the fire truck engine was dispatched immediately. And then the the you know the firefighter was fighting, throwing in, put, putting in water into the facility, but it was not helping. It was creating more smoke. So then we had two loader operator got into the loader truck and went through this building that has fire coming out of it and just drive through it and start getting all these material out. 
Go in, move the material out. Go in and move the material out. Back and forth, back and forth, so that there's no more material to be burned. Twenty-three hours later, nonstop, they worked. And then we asked them, "Why did you do that? Risking your life for this?" You know the answer. Their reply is, "This is our building. This is our company, and we want to make sure we can continue to serve San Francisco." Wow. That's employee ownership.、Um, a lot of you know that Recology is a pioneer in recycling. Recycling creates ten times more jobs than landfilling or incineration. This fact is documented in a study done by a collaboration of labor, environmental group, and the business community. The study is called "More Jobs, Less Pollution." Growing the recycle recycling economy in the U.S. See, when you create a job in recycling, you can lift up a whole family for three generation. Here's how. Back in 2002, Recology created a recycle central, a 200,000 square foot recycling plant at Pier 96 for bottles and cans and paper. Recycle Central is also located at Bayfield Hunters Point. To staff that recycling plant, Recology and the city decided to hire people who live near the facility. We hired 175 workers back in 2002. Many, many of these people had never had a job before, or they work in very low-paying jobs such as fast food. Today, the workers at Recycle Central earn a salary ranges start at twenty-five, and they can grow to fifty dollars an hour. Not just that, they have great health care benefits,、um, strong health, medical insurance for themselves, and the immediate dependents. And these workers will receive a pension when they retire. Not just any pension, but a good one. And they own the company. So as we do well as a company. They all rise along with us because we're 100% employee-owned. Please know this too: some of my friends at the Recology Central are able to send their children to some of the best public university in California, and these students are graduating with four years' degree, with no debt, because the parents paying for it is able to pay for it. The city of San Francisco wants to introduce the total. Tons of material we sent reduce. Sorry, reduce the total tons of material we send to landfill every year. So in the past twelve years, we've been working towards this goal with the with San Francisco, and we've created hundreds of new jobs, permanent local jobs. And today we are have close to four thousand employees, of which eleven hundred people work and live in San Francisco. Delegations from over a hundred countries have come to San Francisco in the last six years to tour our program. They come to see how we recycle, compost, and thereby sending less to the landfill. They come here to learn about the jobs we are creating as we do more and more recycling. Mayors and other officials and representatives want to replicate the San Francisco model, recycling model. Because they too want jobs for the community. As a hundred percent employee-owned company, it also allow us to think 
and make decisions for the long term. And our ability to keep the revenue here locally, share the profit with our employee owners, and invest in the community is definitely a pathway to restore the middle class, no matter where you are. Excellent. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So let me... Um... And I ask you is what, one follow-up question as well, and then we'll um, open it up for questions. I've got a large number of them coming in from the audience already, and I'll try and uh, mm -hmm. ask those as we go. But um, you described your, your role in an employee-owned company, but you're also a member of the San Francisco Chamber of Commerce. Yes. And involved with other businesses. Mm -hmm. um, is, uh, how are other businesses that you see thinking about the sets of questions that you raise that, that Recology is playing so much effort on? You know, we actually talked to some of the, recently, just some of the board member. The, op, the best opportune time is when somebody owns a business and runs the business and they're thinking of retiring. That is a great opportunity for them to turn it into the employee that been working and loyal um, for the company. So that's one um, opportunity that I actually, and when I look at the Chamber of Commerce, these are all my customers. So if they do well, you know, if I can share... You know, my knowledge, you know, um, it's a good thing. Okay, great. Well, I'm going to weave some questions in here that, that are questions that I had as well as a number of them from the audience, and I'll not ask you each to answer them, but if anybody wants to answer it, that would be great. Mm -hmm. So um, you all described roles that you're playing in your companies and their companies' roles in trying to address this question that Sarah posed for us around the challenge of renewing the California dream or the American dream and the challenge of economic mobility. Uh, what's the biggest challenge you face internally in terms of trying to keep the focus on these issues? Is there anything that is really challenging for you? What, what is it that we need to pay more attention to, whoever would like to go? I would say for AT&T, because we are such a large organization, you have to be focused on the continuous learning cycle and, and engaging your employees to get them excited to do that, um, to see the future, not to just look at what's today in front of them, but what the possibilities are so that they can see a career, they can see an opportunity. And so I think that's the hard thing is to really try to share the vision of that. And particularly here in California, I mean, who doesn't want to be in California? It's the entrepreneurial spirit. It's the time and opportunity to look at diversity and benefiting from that. So I think we are unusually um, blessed in the state of California to try and promote all the change the growth for at least for our company in these two sectors. And, you know, what our company can do even in the agricultural sector as far as promoting different types of connectivity and growth in that important part of California as well. So I think you just got to share a vision and then try and get people excited about the change. Okay, great. And I, um, you know, I think that companies working in, in technology and companies that are software companies, um, early on understood the value of investing in employees. Um, and, you know, and, and also not purely altruistic. If you have a cafeteria on site, you're more likely to work through lunch. But, um, <laughs> but uh, I, the opportunity, I think, some of the challenges is that we actually think of, we're only as good as our best engineering teams. And to actually remember that that's actually not how a lot of other businesses think about this. And so it's, a, it's kind of a constant reminder of, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we we're constantly investing in our employees and um, and trying to make sure that we have the best talent to have the best products. Mm-hmm. Um, in a lot of cases, particularly low and middle scale jobs, that's not the case. And so, how do you um, cross that bridge, cross that divide, and get folks thinking about it in that way versus the the bubble in which we live here okay. in Silicon Valley? Minna, do you want to add anything? You know, I, I agree. It's really education, engagement, mm-hmm. um, and um, what I learn is the best thing is to show them that you really care you know for them to come in and we're part of employee owners so we have an open door policy anybody can walk into my office and have a conversation (laughs) you know openly you know it's just you know the recology way i would say okay great so um we had a number of questions related to how expensive it is to live in california and particular questions around not just owning a home, but being able to afford a rent during a home. Mm-hmm. So how do you all think about the issue of affordability and what, if anything, can we do to address the issue of affordability, not just for housing, but for renters as well? And Sarah, you, you, that can be go to you as well, because I know you've researched some of these things. Sure. I might just add the uh, concern about housing and affordability for students pursuing education, and that goes for mm-hmm. you know first time kind of college going students as well as the stranded workers that I was talking about earlier. Um, that's uh, we did a survey at PPIC last fall, and affordability is one of the key was the top issue actually that Californians um, cited in terms of um, their ability to invest in education. Um, and it's, it really is about housing because the full cost of college is now um, less than half of it is actually tuition. And we have a lot of programs in California that try to assist um, low-income students um, so that they can pursue their education. But it's that other half or more um, that is housing and food and all of that. And so you, know, you, you see stats all the time about um, homelessness or unstable housing among college students, community college students, four-year college students, um, and it's a it, it, it hampers, um, I think, uh, investments um, in that human capital that are so critical to mobility today. Okay. Any other thoughts on what we could or should be doing? Not necessarily you should be doing at your companies, but what should we be doing about the affordability challenge of being able to live here? It's Go ahead. I would say I have two two mm-hmm. thoughts. One, um, I'll plug another wonderful local nonprofit um, of which I sit on the board, Spur, um, is, uh, here in the Bay Area, um, trying to help us have a, a regional policy. We we are mm-hmm. so many municipalities, and everybody's kind of doing their own thing. And so having like some sort of um, regional authority that helps us identify collective issues and solve those collective issues. Um, but from the Autodesk perspective, actually, one of the most expensive things um, in housing is construction. And I think I, think I just saw the average for a, for a one-unit condo in a 10-unit building. It's, it's, it, the, cost, the cost is $800,000. So how can you create any affordable housing when that, you know, that bar is so high? Um, one of the solutions is industrialized construction. And so... Um, Prefab modular housing has been around forever um, for like the last three decades, and it hasn't really broken into the mainstream because um, you have to have significant economies of scale. And 
now the cost of housing has gotten to be such that people are figuring it out. Um, there's a great local company here called Factory OS. Um, they're actually up in Richmond on Mare Island um, that are churning out units so fast. Um, and they're able to do so at like a third to 40% cost reduction. So you, that, that is helping us to sur- solve some of that affordability. And again, it's self-serving because it goes back to that automation. They are automating a shop floor to build units of housing quicker. And I think that's absolutely what we need. And I think London Breed just announced uh, an initiative within San Francisco to try to do the same. So um, there are ways to reduce some of those costs. But I think, again, we have to deploy every tool at our uh, at our expense to be able to solve some of these problems. Okay. And, and I, I also have to agree, you know, um, Cahill Constructions um, also has been started and has been quite successful in East Bay in terms of building prefab for low-income housing. Mm. So the model is there, it's happening, and I think that you're right. You know, the prefab, the production model, manufacturing model is a good way to go for low-income or, or even market-rate market rate housing. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I'm also worried about is because we're in the industry, people are moving further and further away from their work. You know, I have folks that travel two, three hours each way to come to work. So they're tired. They live in Stockton because that's when they can afford to, you know, be the sole breadwinner and have the kids go to school and, you know, live the American dream. But they live so far away. Um, I don't know what the right solution is, but regional looking at it would be a good thing. I know at AT&T, too, we have initiated, and you mentioned that we do a lot in the philanthropic space, and mm-hmm. we're looking at a program called Believe, which here in the Bay Area is all focused on jobs, jobs, jobs. Mm-hmm. So how do you get out and invest in the tech community and try to give opportunities through philanthropic organizations? Vets in Tech is one we're working with, Girls Who Code, helping to get training and skill mm-hmm. sets out there that give jobs of the future, hopefully, and have opportunities to grow. So I think they're between our employee-based volunteerism, philanthropic giving, it just helps from that perspective, at least as our company, is another way, hopefully, to provide opportunities and hopefully, at some point, jobs. Okay, great. Um, there were a number of questions about where work is going and the challenge of ensuring, as you said, many of you, that you're upskilling and retraining workers as well as trying to ensure that those who have different educational backgrounds have opportunities. Mm-hmm. And if you look forward a little bit, five, 10 years, what do you, what's your view? Are we going to have any jobs? Is the robot apocalypse real? You know, how do we ensure that we actually have jobs and ensure that people are ready for them? Sarah, you've looked at this too, so I don't mean to leave you out of this question. I'd, I'd be more interested to hear what they have to say. Okay. Start off. <laughs> Well, I do think, and again, I've said this before, I think there's so much opportunity. This state has so much diversity. There's so much growth. It's the entrepreneur state. I think there is an optimistic future. Everybody wants to come and live here. I came from the Midwest, and believe me, I enjoy living here. (laughs) Um, But it is expensive. But it's such a vibrant market, and I think there's growth that does exist um, but you have to not be stagnant. I mean, mm-hmm. to the other comments that uh, my panelists made, you really have to look at where is the future right. and then put those stakes in the ground and make investment in your people mm-hmm. um, and communicate with them what you're thinking. I do. I think it's very optimistic. When you look at this state, whether you're, again, 
so many major industry issues in the Bay Area around technology, Silicon Valley. You look down entertainment space and everything that surrounds that ecosystem. We're talking about now, you don't just have to be in front of the camera. You can be behind the camera. You can be costume design. You can be set design. There's a lot of jobs in that. Just as in the tech industry, there's a lot of jobs. So I do think we need to focus on the positive. I think we need to encourage people to look at what those new growth places might be. And then, you know, for a company at least like AT&T to help support groups that can help in that training piece of it. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've spent a lot of time researching this around how, how what, what, what's the impact of automation and artificial intelligence on jobs. And the best example is to look back uh, to history because we have synonymous um, examples of this. Um, you know, so in the year 1900, of the U.S. workforce was in ag. Um, Fast forward four decades later, uh, it's closer to 2%. And so um, also one of my favorite examples, famously just used by uh, the comedian John Oliver, is around uh, ATM machines. So in 1967, the first ATM machine was introduced, and it predicted the, the slow death of the bank teller. In 1970, we had 300,000 bank tellers. And by 2010, we had 600,000. And and why? Uh, Banks were actually able to, when they took that task of dispensing cash out of the hands of people, they had much more productive workers. They could actually open more branches. And so when you think about automation and some of these tools, it actually automates very specific tasks that I'm sure most of those bank tellers didn't want to sit out there counting cash. And so... Um, looking at these past examples, and yes, the speed of acceleration of tool adoption or technology adoption is increasing, but, um, but I think we're going to actually see more jobs, um, a, a lot more of them. Um, but we need to ensure that you're putting people at the center and that we're acknowledging that um, some of these tools are, are going to be good for repetitive, like very specific tasks, and that people are going to need to focus on non-repetitive, pr- creative problem-solving, social interaction, um, and these are, the, these are the jobs and competencies of the future. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> Great. Right, so let me ask you each to give advice to the governor. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think that the state of California should do if you could pick one thing to help encourage economic mobility in the state? What would you focus on? Sarah, you researched this, so you can only say one thing. (laughs) (laughs) But there are so many data points, Lenny. Uh, I think the most important thing would be essentially democratizing access to education because we really can't get to the future that we're talking about if we don't broaden that access um, to uh, students and Californians from different backgrounds that don't historically... um, have high levels of achievement beyond high school, and that includes low-income, disadvantaged students whose parents didn't go to college, and, of course, um, uh, race-ethnic groups that are underrepresented in our institutions. So democratize access means everyone has access to post-secondary? What do you mean? Yeah, I mean everyone has access, and we've actually... There are some bright spots, actually. I mean, the access to uh, University of California and Cal State system has been really increasing across these dimensions over the past 10 years or so. There's still a lot of room to grow. Um, and so I, I'm hopeful. Um, and I think this is a focus that um, the governor likely will, will hold. Okay. Rhonda. 
Hmm. <laughs> well, we've already talked a lot about the um, <coughs> the housing issue. <coughs> Excuse me. So I do think that is a huge thing for um, the governor and his team to look at. Um, I would also say that when you think about students and our young people, that, that when they come out of school, if they have a huge college debt, um, and then you get the housing market on top of that, you need a roof over your head, and you need to be able to find a place to live so you can work. So you know, somehow looking at our education system, but then I do think it, it, a lot of it comes down to, particularly for us in the Bay Area, is around the housing issue. OK. Is this, is this ideas for the new gig? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whatever you want. Uh, I, I, would, um, I would take your comments one step farther. And I say we need to kind of completely reimagine how we think about education. Um, we just had a gentleman from Stanford, uh, a guy named Bill Burnett, at our offices, who Stanford had actually, he, he works in the engineering design school. And they had asked him, how, what's education in the future? And he said, we need to actually eliminate the idea of, of alumni that you are a lifetime student, a lifetime learner. Um, if you are, uh, go to Stanford, you're not a Stanford grad, you're a Stanford student for the rest of your life. Now, that didn't fly with the regents because <laughs> the, the business model doesn't work very well. But, um, but I really do think that we all have to be thinking about how we're regularly upskilling um, ourselves and the workforce writ large. And so education is an easy thing to put into a box and say, oh, the public sector needs to do better. And then these systems. we need to actually think about it completely differently and kind of blow it up and start from the ground up. Okay. Gavin. Wow. <laughs> All great points about education and stuff. You know, I, I think that we really need to reinvent family. Hmm. How we can really... Um, support each other, friends and family when they're in need, instead of being so independent, very, um, I don't know what the right word is. You know, in a Chinese culture, you know, nobody's homeless because you always have a family to fall back to. I think that kind of um, feeling convenient or needs to be reconnected and rebuilt. That's a wonderful aspiration, so... <laughs> so you, you, I suspect, have some of that in your family background as well as your company background from what, yes. how you do. So how do we extend that to others and ensure that that's the way we feel? You know, um, that's a good question, you know, because I <laughs> personally, I think that is more joy to give than to receive. And we start from there. I think really education, training, and uh, working with different people and changing people's life one at a time. Okay, great. Um, we have unfortunately just got to about that point of the program when I feel like we're just starting, but it's been um, almost an hour, so we've only got time for a couple of more questions, and I'm going to do rapid-fire questions if that's okay. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to ask you two questions, and so you can... Uh, be prepared for them um, and think about it. The first one is you're talking to a group of your business colleagues, the most skeptical ones about why they should care about economic mobility. What's your most compelling answer about why they should care? That's my first question. And my second question is, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the ability to do anything about ensuring that the California dream is available to everyone? 
And if you're optimistic, tell me why you're optimistic. What's the most important reason? If you're pessimistic, tell me why you're pessimistic. Okay, is that clear? Mm-hmm. Two questions. Okay, who wants to go first? I'll take the last question first. Okay. Um, I'm optimistic because I really believe in people and the humankind. And um, I also believe that... Um, um, that's the last question. What was the first question? <laughs> first question is you're, you're in front why of a skeptical business leader about why they should care and do anything about the issues we're talking about. What's oh, your... I'll spend my time talking with someone else. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Good answer. That's a great answer. Thank you. I want to talk to you. <laughs> okay, Joe. <laughs> Who wants to go next? I know. I think the first, I would say, think of your family for mm-hmm. why you should care. I mean, yeah. again, everyone, whether you have a children or whether you have siblings or even whether you have friends, is it's a future thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about your, it's a legacy that you leave or it's an investment that you're making. So they should care. I got to believe that we're mm-hmm. all people. Yeah. So to your earlier point, I think mm-hmm. to try and make it personal is a big thing. Um, and then what was the second question? Optimistic. optimistic. Oh, I'm oh, I'm optimistic. I, I, I have to be. Um, you need to think about all the different growth areas. I mean, literally, when you think about this state, it's um, our educa- I mean, I talked about student debt, but I mean, we have great education system in many ways. We have great system as far as growth for jobs. I mean, mm-hmm. look at what's happening in the technology space or look what's happening in even, you know, the other sector, which is agriculture or entertainment. I mean, I really do think there is growth. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of entrepreneurs and startup companies and people that are investing and coming up with brilliant ideas that, um, you know, people didn't think or even dream of, um, you know, five years ago. So I'm very optimistic. Great. Sure. I'll uh, start with the dismal science perspective on the, um, the skeptics <laughs> about mobility. I, I, I would say, really, we're talking about worker productivity. And if you want to be successful, I'm not a business owner, but um, you need a productive workforce. And so mm-hmm. even though like something like 40% of human capital is built on the job, um, as a business owner, if you wanted to outsource that to a public institution uh, and, and just reap the rewards of that productivity, that seems like a, a decent argument to me. Um, and then on the flip side, the non-dismal scientist side, I actually am optimistic. Um, there are so many conversations going on around the state on the topic of economic mobility, investments, um, and really thinking about how our next kind of economic cycle and the future ahead for California, how we can make it better for everyone. So I'm optimistic. Okay. Thank you. I feel pressure to be opposite the rest of the, (laughs) but I, um, I, um, with regards to the first question, I actually had the benefit of being in a room of hostels recently. Um, (laughs) our, our, I will not say the company, but, um, our, our foundation invests in, um, renewable energy, specifically renewable energy technology. And I was brought into a customer briefing with a large oil and gas company. And um, the message that resonated, I knew I was going into household territory, and the message that resonated is we care about the middle class and we need a thriving middle class for our business to survive. And this group of Texans embraced that message. And so I think that that's something that we all can agree on that Mm -hmm. brings us together. Um, The optimistic, pessimistic side, I'm 
I'm reminded of Winston Churchill's comments that the Americans will expend every other option, and this is a terrible butchering of the phrase, but they will, they'll do everything they can until they're forced to do the right thing. And I think that that's what <laughs> we will do. Um, I think about the two biggest challenges that we have on the planet are inequality and climate change. And uh, I think we're starting to see some really uh, interesting uh, avenues to success in climate change. Um, after 20, 25 years. And I think inequality is something that we can absolutely tackle as well. Mm-hmm. That's, that's great. Thank you. And I'll give you my lightning round answer to both of them. Yes. Um, number one, this is what I tell my students at Stanford Business School when I'm telling them about why business leaders need to care about uh, that lack of economic mobility. Number one, it's in their business interest yeah. to ensure that there's a future customer base and people that work. And if it was your company, what would you do? Mm-hmm. Uh, and number two, you're a human being. Isn't there a good reason to think that we actually would like the future generations to have the opportunity that we would? So put either one of those hats on. It's a good business idea to care about these issues. Mm -hmm. And my answer about whether I'm optimistic or pessimistic is that I'm optimistic, but I'm a realist. This is hard. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we have researchers and business leaders here and philanthropic support in a convening like this that takes this issue seriously is why I'm optimistic. It's not going to get solved overnight. But if we can't fix this issue in California, shame on us. And so the opportunity for us is to take the, the challenge that was put forth to us by the Commonwealth Club and by the framing that the Irvine Foundation and Don Howard said is, can the California dream be real for the next generation that it has in the past? The answer is, of course it can. It was done in the past. Now what do we need to do to ensure that it's there going forward? So with that, please join me in thanking our panelists once again. Again, thank you, Dr. Sarah Bone, Director of Research and Senior Fellow at the Public Policy Institute of California, Rhonda Johnson, the President of AT&T California, Joe Spiker, the Director of the Autodesk Foundation, and Minna Tao, the General Manager of Recology. This program has been generously supported by the James Irvine Foundation. We also like to thank our audience here on radio, television, and the internet, and watching us in outer space. So I'm Glennie Mendoza, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club, the place where you're in the know, is adjourned. <laughs>